I've treated hundreds of patients and trained thousands of healthcare professionals over my 15-year career. And one thing I've learned through that experience is that most people are really confused about supplements, or they lack a clear strategy or plan for how to use supplements to improve their health. That's why I created Adapt Naturals. It's a supplement line designed to add back in what the modern world has squeezed out and help you feel and perform your best. Our ancestors' diets were rich in the essential vitamins and minerals and phytonutrients we need for optimal function. But today, thanks to declining soil quality, a growing toxic burden, and other challenges in the modern world, most of us are not getting enough of these critical nutrients. I formulated Adapt Naturals using the principles of evolutionary biology and modern research to fill the nutrient gaps that we face today and replicate the nutrient intakes found in an optimal ancestral diet. Our flagship offering is called the Core Plus Bundle, a daily stack of five products that gives you everything you need each day, from essential vitamins and minerals like B12, folate, magnesium, and vitamin D, to phytonutrients like bioflavonoids, carotenoids, and beta-glucans. You can also order the products in the bundle separately if that works better for your needs. The Adapt Naturals products are made from the highest quality, food-based, or bioidentical ingredients, from cellular and immune health to brain and nervous system support to blood sugar and heart health, we've got you covered. Your supplement cupboard is about to get a lot smaller. We also created an app called Core Reset to help you get your nutrition, sleep, movement, and stress management dialed in. Because no matter how good our supplements are, and they are really good, you can't supplement yourself out of a bad diet and lifestyle. The best part is that you get this app at no additional cost when you order the Core Plus bundle. Head over to adaptnaturals.com, that's A-D-A-P-T naturals.com, to learn more and start feeling and performing your best. Hey everybody, Chris Kresser. Welcome to another episode of Revolution Health Radio. I've been concerned about the impact of excess screen time on kids and teens for many years, and if anything, that concern has increased over the past few years as I've learned more about the potentially harmful impacts of excess screen use in these age groups, and as I've seen trends continue to increase in terms of the amount of time that kids and teens are spending on screens, and also learned more about the tactics that social media companies and technology firms use to maximize kids' use of screens, uh, you know, profit from their attention, and uh, generally uh, create an entire business model around getting kids to engage in what I think are unhealthy ways with content on social media. So I'm really excited to welcome Jean Rogers as my guest for this week. She is the director of the Screen Time Action Network, and she is also on the staff of Fair Play, which is an organization that advocates for a childhood beyond brands. We'll talk about what that means in the show. Uh, Jean uses screen time research to help parents and professionals reduce children's screen time and promote creative play. And we're going to talk uh, in this episode about why excess screen time is a problem for kids what the most recent trends are in terms of the growth of screen time in kids and teens, what some of the physical impacts of screen overuse are, uh, what people should know about the long-term benefits of moderating screen time use, why 
children's technology use is a public health issue and not just a, an individual issue for, for parents or kids. I think this is a really important point that we, we need to recognize and rally behind. How child-targeted marketing contributes to excess screen time and, and the other issues that that type of marketing can cause. And then what steps, of course, parents can take to help their kids have a healthier relationship with technology and screens in this environment that we live in today where screens are ubiquitous. So I'm not coming in this show from the perspective of we should get rid of screens entirely. Uh, we recognize that they're part of our lives and there are many uh, amazing uh, qualities of technology and screen use that kids can implement to make their lives better and to you know, prepare themselves for life in the 21st century. So I'm not a Luddite, and I am interested in exploring how we can create healthier relationships with screens or how our kids can create healthier relationship with screens. And in particular, how we can change perhaps business models and public health policy so that our kids are not being manipulated by these global brands that have, you know, neurohacking brain scientists on staff that are creating algorithms that will, you know, maximize our, our kids' use of screens and make it very difficult for them to resist. So that's going to be part of the conversation. I think this is a really important topic for any parents, and I hope you enjoy the show. Let's dive in. Gene Rogers, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much, Chris, for having me. So I'd like to talk, uh, to begin with talking about the recent trends in screen time in kids. This is an issue I've talked a lot about on my podcast over the last several years, but I'm, I haven't really done a deep dive in the last, let's say, year uh, in terms of the, the trends. Is screen time in kids continuing to go up? Has it plateaued? Is it going down? What, what's happening now in terms of the latest statistics? So we knew that the pandemic caused huge increases. I'm sure you've talked about that as well. Um, there was a Pew study in 2020 that um, was called Parenting in the Age of Screens, Parenting Children in the Age of Screens. And two thirds of parents said parenting is harder than it was 20 years ago. And they blamed screens and social media for the reason. Um, but a repeat study then happened in 2021 and 72% of them shared that kids were spending more time on their devices and that they as parents were less strict about their non-schoolwork time that they were having. Of course, they had to be, you know, what the, what the, with what they were dealing with. Right. So you had a, a number of parents who were home, not in the office, not working. Their kids were not in school, uh, which would they typically would have been. And so they were in a really tight spot. They had to figure out a way to navigate that and kids being on a screen and whether they were doing school-related activities or ostensibly doing school-related activities and actually doing something else that's very difficult to monitor, especially if you as the parent are at home trying to get work done yourself. Absolutely. And I mean, we saw an increase in video games, an increase, parents said, more time on smartphones, more time on video games. And these were like huge, like 20%, 40% increases from prior to the pandemic. So, and we're not seeing those trends 
uh, roll back, you know, now that we're more in public, uh, we're just seeing that habits are formed. And that's probably a lot of what we'll talk about today is how these habits are formed developmentally in kids and in families and what things we can do to abate that. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a, a crucial point there where, and, and we've seen this in other aspects of post-COVID life where the, the shifts happen because of COVID, but some of them seem to be permanent or at least you know, longer term than uh, something that might just pivot back after the lockdowns ended and people are able to go back to the office. We see that in demographic trends, where people are living, how they're working, et cetera. And so it seems like screen time is definitely uh, part of that. I also just want to say this from the top. I think you and I agree on this. You know, throughout this episode, we're going to be talking about um, screen time and kids and steps parents can take to, to you know, create healthier boundaries and, and mitigate some of those impacts. But I want to be clear that I think that this is not just an individual problem. This is not just a parenting issue. This is a systemic problem um, that we're all facing and we're all struggling with. And it's, as you've pointed out, Gene, it's a public health issue. It's, it's not just a question of individual parents making different choices. We have to create systemic solutions, um, public health policy, shifts in business models, you know, social media and online business models to, to make it easier for parents to create these healthier boundaries and healthier relationships, because we can't do it on our own as parents. So this is, this is not an indictment of, of parents and individual parents. Um, it's a recognition that we're facing some really deeply entrenched society-wide issues here. We are, Chris. And the first thing I tell parents when I give workshops is ditch the guilt because there's enough to be guilty about in parenting. And there's a lot of guilt and shame around how much screen time I use with my kids and you know, am I doing the right thing by them? And, you know, it's the system is set up against you. The manipulation and the persuasive design on children's apps and in children's media is, um, is beyond your control. So we, we don't want parents to feel guilty and we're, we're doing what we can to support those systemic changes. Yeah, I totally agree. Let, let's, since we touched on that, let's linger on that for a bit because uh, I've I've watched Social Dilemma twice and I've talked about it a lot on the show and I had Tim Kendall actually on as a guest and w- what I really appreciated about that show is that it it lifted the veil and showed us how intentional and explicit the attempts are by these multinational you know corporations that run the the social media platforms to maximize not only our kids attention but all of our attention (laughs) essentially um but let's you know specifically for kids there the algorithms have have been developed by brain hackers and neuroscientists who understand how to hook kids in and how to create algorithms in such a way that they will maximize engagement at, at just the time where the, the child is feeling the most vulnerable uh, with Instagram, for example. And so, uh, you know, one of the, the phrases that, I, that really stuck with me from The Social Dilemma is that it's not a fair fight. We have each individual 
kid with their naturally hardwired biological mechanisms, dopamine reward system, all of the things that helped us to survive in a natural environment versus billion, you know, corporations that are worth billions and billions of dollars that have a whole team of scientists that are trying to maximize attention. It's really not a fair fight and it's not, it's not realistic to assume that we can just empower individuals to overcome that on their own. You're hired. <laughs> Would you like to turn my staff? So we, we were, I'm so pleased to actually hear you repeating these messages uh, because we really are wanting awareness. And with the social dilemma, we were able to stop um, saying it so many times and just tell people, go watch that film right. come back, and we'll work on this together. We were so relieved and we worked quite a bit with Center for Humane Technology and the Social Dilemma Outreach Team um, to get this out, to get this messaging out that, um, that the persuasive design is baked into everything. Um, advertising is baked into everything. It's profit-driven. It's not kid-driven. And so what we are doing at Fair Play is we're supporting comprehensive legislation like COSA, the Kids Online Safety Act, um, probably the most important bill to pay attention to right now. And it will make those tech com companies accountable it requires them to have a duty of care, um, each of the platforms in the best interest of minors, and um, it will limit the harmful content that they're exposed to. And, um, you know, we can't count on these companies for self-regulation. Yeah, that's that much is clear. And uh, I think history has proven that over and over. Um, with, with this in mind, you know, recognizing that this is not an individual problem, it's a societal problem. What are what do we know now about the various risks of excess screen time in kids? So we have, you know, different categories of physical effects, mental and behavioral and emotional effects. We've got things like cyberbullying. We've got, you know, sexual predation and and the risks involved there. Um, you know, if if we kind of break this down into broader categories, what what is the how has the research coalesced uh, up until today in terms of these uh, potential harms? Sure. So I like to really to simplify for people and divide it into two categories, and I call it physical and developmental, and all those the emotional. Um, the cognitive, everything falls into the developmental area for kids. And, you know, we see teens and young adults even as are still our children, they're impacted and they're still have developing brains. So in the physical realm, um, we are seeing quite a bit of risk to eyes. So myopia at very young ages, uh, ophthalmologists will tell you more and more kids getting glasses younger and younger. Uh, but also something even scarier, which is macular degeneration, even in teens. This is an elderly disease, and we're now seeing it in very young people. Um, obviously, increase in overweight and diabetic children. So that's something that we've been watching for many years, but it's increasing. Speech and language delays. So we work closely with ASHA, American Speech, Language, and Hearing Association, and they say for every hour of screen time in infancy, they see language delays at three years of age. So sometimes we're not thinking about when we have a baby and maybe that baby's in front of a screen, um, that impact that it might have three or four years down the road when they're a preschooler or a kindergartner. 
and having those speech and language delays that we have to address then. In the develop, those are few of the physical. And then in the developmental area, children can miss milestones or what we call displacement. So the screens are, the time in front of screens is displacing other time that they really, really need. So a couple of things that I'll mention there are they need key bonding time with parents. So this can create attachment disorders when they don't have a lot of face time with caring adults. And um, those bonding issues can create things. This is how children feel safe in the world, how they feel they're able to move forward by having the attachment with the caring adults and with much time on screens and even with parental time on screens, I'll mention, um, they, they're missing a lot of that face time and that language development that we see. And then um, with the cyberbullying, we are addressing that in our cyberbullying and online safety work group. And much of it is, I'll just really loop back to the companies that we just discussed and the social dilemma is driven by profit uh, because the, the bullies are also able to get so much out there and the bullying comes home with them. Whereas bullying used to stay at school, now it's on the bus with you, it's, it's at home with you, it's in bed often. Some of these companies have been quoted as saying in marketing reports, our biggest competition is sleep. And we know sleep is another thing that kids are sorely missing. Yeah, and, and, and the implications of that are profound and diverse, uh, affecting pretty much every system of the body and the brain. Uh, and there's more and more research uh, now on the if impacts of sleep deprivation chronically, um, both in adults and children. And, you know, I see new studies published on this virtually every week. So that's, that's definitely one of my biggest concerns. Um, I'm, I'm aware of some research uh, that's been done on screens and the development of empathy where looking for too long at a two-dimensional screen can may impair the development of empathy. I don't know if that's been fleshed out or revisited or if, if that's something that you've come across as well. We do have a partner called Soul Shop. They do empathy education in schools and, um, and they have pointed to that fact that you're talking about, which is the two-dimensional life that children are uh, growing up in so uh, but also the content that they're seeing what can be swaying them one way or the other can also be conditioning them to less empathy uh, but they're not making that eye contact like we talked about earlier they're not I mean another really important thing for empathy training is time in nature children having time with animals, having time growing vegetables, having time um, in a park even um, has been proven through our friends at Children in Nature Network to improve empathy. So when all these pieces are missing, we're missing a big piece of what's, and as we're talking about this, it occurs to me, you know, looping back to public health, these are going to be our leaders. These children are gonna be our leaders. And so what we do with them today, tomorrow, next week, next month, that's shaping them um, for either being able to problem solve. We have big problems we need this generation to solve. And, um, and so we have to be careful how we're shaping them now. 
That's such a good point. I'm reading a book called Stolen Focus right now, which is a lot about that. And uh, the chapter I just finished was uh, about the decline of reading long form content, like both nonfiction and fiction, but particularly fiction. And there's really interesting research showing that when kids or adults read fiction, that contributes to the development of empathy because when you read a, a story, you know, whether it's told from the first person or the third person, you're really able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and imagine what it's like to be in their world, whether you're reading an account, you know, an account of being a slave 200 years ago in, in, in this country, or whether you're reading about someone in a completely different culture, you're able to, you know, first of all, you're spending days or weeks, you know, deeply immersed in that world and and you're really engaging with it and grappling with it and thinking about it and ha have kind of a linear relationship with that the characters in that world and that leads to a type of understanding of the human condition that you don't get when you're just kind of with the social media frame where you're just generally the interactions are shallower they're uh, shorter you're going from one thing to the next more quickly um there's the whole polarization that has happened on social media and and you don't really get that experience that you get from reading long form content and and uh the author's point was exactly what you just mentioned you know all of the problems that we're facing today whether they're individual or societal require sustained attention to solve so what happens when we have an entire society of people, and I would include adults in this category as well, who are less able to focus and sustain attention over time. That's, that's one of the greatest concerns that I have about excess screen time in kids and in adults for that matter. Yes, Chris, I had the opportunity to interview Johan Hari for our Action Network live webinar series. The book was uh, life-changing for me as well. Um, and I think that um, that piece about going from one thing to the next quickly uh, is what we call sort of the colloquial ADD. Oh, we all say, I have ADD, I have ADD. But we know it exacerbates some of the physical symptoms in children with the ADD and the ADHD um, to have that fast-paced screen time. Uh, in fact, our Advisory board member, Dr. Victoria Dunkley has written the book, Reset Your Child's Brain, which I highly recommend for anyone who feels they might really wanna get a handle on the ADD piece. Um, she puts them on a four week hiatus from screens, children. And then when they come back in, she brings them back in with some traditional TV because it didn't have as many of those fast paced pieces to it, watching a family movie, that kind of thing was very different than what we see on the apps. Also I want to comment, yes, Johan Hari is an English major, so was I undergrad. And I, um, they tell us because we read so much fiction that we have more common sense. So that's another thing that we want to see in our next generation is a lot of common sense. We see how the division um, in society can sometimes revolve around the lack of common sense. So, Absolutely. And I want to touch on something you mentioned, which is that not all media has the same effect. 
So I, I remember from um, Stolen Focus, he mentioned that long form television series actually has some of the same benefits as uh, reading fiction um, because you get that same linear deep engagement over a longer period of time, which helps you to develop empathy and understand people. Whereas watching like four, three minute YouTube videos or, you know, scrolling through an Instagram feed or doing something like that, it does not have that benefit because it's, you know, it, it's moving from one thing to the next quickly and you're not really engaging with it. So that might be something that would help a parent shape what types of media they expose their kids to and, you know, watching a, a family movie, like you said, or watching even a longer, you know, extended longer form TV series might be a better option than, you know, giving your child, uh, your young child access to Instagram or some platform like that. Yes, definitely. So that's what we call, um, or what the AAP, American Academy of Pediatrics, calls co-viewing. And so there are multiple benefits to that. Not only is it that long form, so developmentally it's better for kids, but co-viewing allows you to understand the content. If a kid is lost in their mobile device, um, it's harder for you to understand or keep tabs on what they're viewing, what the content is, um, and whether it might not agree with your values, it might be violent, it might be um, somehow disturbing to the child. So watching something together, you're able to see what they're doing, but also it promotes discussion, it promotes family discussion. So we are really big on screen-free dinners, screen-free meals whenever it's possible. Sometimes it's not, but whenever it's possible, then um, that becomes a point of family discussion, that long form TV series that we might, or movie we might've seen together. And those characters um, have depth to them when we discuss you know, how that applies to someone else we know in life or, a friend they met at school, maybe they had a similar kind of argument with a friend and you're able to say, oh, look, remember what happened in that film. And so it promotes family conversation. Hmm. Yeah, I love that. Um, let, let's kind of expand this topic to, you know, we so far we've been using the phrase excess screen time without really defining what that is. Um, and I know that it varies from different age groups. And I also know that that's at least you know, the guidelines have changed. Um, for example, I think the, um, what is it, the American Academy of Pediatrics used to recommend no screen time at all under age two and a much lower amount, you know, from ages two to six or whatever. And, and they've recently changed those guidelines. So I wonder if you could talk about you know, what the evidence-based guidelines are now for different age groups. And then, you know, a side question would be, sometimes when guidelines are changed, the changes are not evidence-based. They're politically driven or, um, you know, maybe just like, oh, hey, well, we recognize that people aren't following these guidelines. <laughs> so we're going to change them to make them seem a little bit more accessible. So I'm curious if any recent changes have you know, what those changes have been driven by, if, if they've actually been driven by research that has told us it's safer to, you know, expand the guidelines or that it's been more along the lines of a politically motivated change. So that's a very interesting question, Chris. I think, so the new American Academy of Pediatrics 
guideline for no screen time is under 18 months now. And um, I can't speak to exactly why that was changed, but I would not call it as much politically changed as culturally changed. Hmm. So, you know, our leaders in this field are aware of what parents are up against and what's realistic. And so there are changes that they've made in the guidelines. That doesn't mean that you can't be thoughtful about how you add screen time to your child's life and have different guidelines for your family at home. Um, so what we say is delay, delay, delay. And that might mean a different number of years, different number of months for, for different families. We respect everyone has a different situation. Um, but we have partners wait until eighth um, that recommend not giving your child a cell phone until eighth grade. Um, and that way they're more on the common computer at home doing their homework. They're on the TV, like we said, and those more um, community driven platforms. So delaying is really a good rule of thumb. It's also great to create a family media plan, which we have several of on our in our resource library at the Screen Time Action Network, and it's screentimenetwork.org. And um, so delaying in the early years and then being thoughtful about how you add it in is really kind of tricky. And we have another resource, one of our most popular and my favorite, it's called Dear Parents. So if you have teams, you know there's a power struggle around these issues. And the worst thing to say to a teen is shut that thing off. <laughs> you know, we get really frustrated with our teens and we just want them in our life more than in their screens. Mm -hmm. it, it seems that, I mean, there's so much there to unpack and, and part of it is the cultural fabric or context that we all live in, right? So uh, if you're a parent and you have, let's say a 10 or 11 year old kid, a lot of the other 10 or 11 year old kids that they're gonna be hanging out with have phones and phones are now a big part of social life. and. Um, and then you have even just like seemingly small, but I think significant changes, like there are no more pay phones and there are no, often even not a landline that a kid can use if they want to call their you know, their parent from somewhere. And so there are these, these challenges that I think make it even more difficult to follow through with, you know, if it's, if a parent has the intention, like I, you know, I'm going to delay giving uh, my child a phone until a certain age, you're swimming upstream, basically. I mean, this is, we have an 11, uh, almost 11 year old daughter. She does not have a phone or any digital device that's her own. And um, we've run into this ourselves where it's uh, sometimes difficult for her to, you know, if she needs to make contact with us, like when I was growing up, I would just put a quarter in a payphone and call my parents, or I would ask if, uh, you know, wherever I was, you know, if I could use their phone and they would pick up their landline and, you know, give it to me. And of course, you know, some people are willing to do that with their, their mobile phones, of course, you know, but it's different. It's different than it was even 15 years ago, uh, much different than it was 30 years ago. And it seems like to me that kids and parents face an uphill battle there. I agree, Chris, and I think a lot of parents are concerned in addition to the, you know, just the regular contact, they're concerned about safety issues, so they want their child to have a phone. 
Um, the nice thing about the wait until eighth program is it's peer driven. Your child's whole class needs to sign up. And that way the parents have peers of kids, parents who are raising kids with the delay. And then the kids have peers. We can't ask our kids to go it alone and we can't go it alone either because we'll be very unpopular <laughs> with our kids <laughs> and with our neighbors. I remember yeah. being very unpopular with one of my neighbors around this issue. Um, with regards to the safety issue, there are phones that don't go out onto the internet, like the Gab right. phone. And I heard there's a new one, I can't remember the name of it, but I think as more awareness is spreading of this, these problems and the social dilemma and programs like this, that there will be more manufacturers wanting to support safer use of devices by children. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the Gab phone, and there's also a Gab watch, um, which, uh, I've looked at both of those. They're interesting. And I think they're doing a lot well. They don't, like you said, they don't, uh, you, there's no app store. So the, the kid can't download apps. They can't go on a web browser. They can't get on Instagram. They basically do text and phone and music and camera and a few other basic functions like that. And I, I think that, that at least with the watch, I'm not sure about the phone, the parent, you have a backend interface where you can set hours of use for those devices. So, uh, you know, let's say you only want your child to, to, to have access to them, you know, between the hours of like 4 p.m. and 6 p.m. before dinner, um, you could essentially set it up so that they only can use it during that period of time. They don't have access during school hours. They're not able to use it at 10 at night when they should be sleeping. Um, so I think it's, that seems to me to be a step in the right direction, at least. And one, you know, reasonable compromise maybe for parents that are concerned about safety or who want their child to be able to communicate with their friends, but don't want, you know, the influence of the social media and, and the corporate brands. Absolutely. I think also it's easier on you as a parent to employ something like that. Um, you're not worried about where they're going on the internet. You're not worried about all the privacy policies that are not written for you to understand. <laughs> they're, you know, they're very difficult. You have to review all of them, but if you don't have them on the phone, it's a start. If you've listened to the show for a while, you know that I'm a super active guy. Depending on the time of year, I'm either skiing, mountain biking, hiking, backpacking, surfing, or lifting weights on most days of the week. I also live in a really dry climate at high elevation. For these reasons, I pay a lot of attention to hydration. I've learned the hard way what happens when I get dehydrated, and I know how important hydration is to overall health. But hydration isn't just about drinking water. It's about water plus electrolytes. This is where Element comes in. It's a combination of electrolytes like sodium, potassium, and magnesium in easy-to-use individual packets that you just add right to your water bottle. And unlike most electrolyte products on the market, Element is free of sugar and artificial junk. I drink Element every day, and it's made a huge difference in how I feel. Even with my training and profession, I don't think I realized how often I was dehydrated before I made Element part of my daily routine. If you'd like to try it, the folks at Element have an exclusive offer for my podcast listeners. You can get a free sample pack with one of each of the eight flavors Element sells when you purchase any Element product. This is perfect for anyone who wants to try all of the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Just go to cresser.co slash Element, that's L-M-N-T, 
to place an order and take advantage of this offer. A, a big part of Fair Play's mission is a childhood without brands. That's act, that's the tagline, in fact. And, and we've kind of uh, touched on a few times in this conversation how child-targeted marketing contributes to excess screen time. Um, so can you say a little bit more about that part of the mission? Uh, why is it important to have a childhood without brands? And how does, how do these, you know, how does branding and marketing to kids influence their use of screens? Great question. So we just celebrated one year with our new name, Fair Play. We used to be called Campaign for Commercial Free Childhood. And that was a mouthful, as you can see. Um, but also we wanted to simplify and be able to incorporate different parts of our mission. But we still are very passionate about childhood without brands, which is why it's our tagline. Brands shape behavior in many, many ways. So manipulation and exploitation of those different developmental stages we talked about earlier is built into most of these apps and many of the apps are driven, are brand driven. Um, I could explain some of them, but I don't think we have enough time today. Um, some of the manipulation that could be part two of this conversation. Uh, we see this all the time. Um, we see brands trying to develop lifetime loyalty. So some of one of my favorite things is, I don't know if you remember the Super Bowl Budweiser ad where the child has lost the dog and then the dog comes back on the farm. And you know the children who see that ad watching the Super Bowl with their families, they love that dog. They love that the dog came back to the kid and they see the logo. They're not drinking beer yet, but that brand says, ah, I'm getting those kids who are watching the Super Bowl with their family to love Budweiser at a certain age. So those the brands are driving behavior from an early age in that way. Um, they're also driving behavior on social media. The ads are sometimes very popular items right next to the game the child's playing, right next to the interaction that they're having with a friend. In fact, we have one of our researchers working on um, the topic of obesity, which overlaps what we were talking about earlier. Um, but how it's shaped by how many food brands children interact with online. Some of the games are, we call them advert games. They're like M&M's games or Burger King games. And they're free, but they're not free because children are being lured into buying those products and thinking that they're healthy when they're not. So we see it in many ways shaping you know, the character and the development of the child. Well, this, of course, was a, a major takeaway from Social Dilemmas, the, the business model of social media in and of itself promotes excess screen use because so many of the services and platforms are offered for free, <laughs> I'm doing air quotes, um, which then, you know, we think we're the customer of those companies and platforms, but we are, in fact, the product. Uh, and they sell advertising on the, you know, on the basis of our usage of the product. And so the more that they can encourage and increase usage, the more advertising they can sell and the more money they make. And this is true not only for, uh, you know, Facebook and Instagram, 
uh, Twitter and platforms like that. It's also true for almost any app that a kid might download from the app store. They're, they're free, you know, with in-app purchases or with in-app ads. And so then a child is playing even like a math game or, you know, something that's uh, educational, uh, but then they're being shown ads throughout the time that they're interacting with that educational app. So it's, it's, a uh, it seems to me a thorny problem because we've all been now conditioned to get things f for free, <laughs> you know, to be able to use these platforms like Instagram and Facebook or, or Google Gmail or, or whatever without paying for them. That's sort of a, an expectation now. And, but there's a huge trade-off for, uh, w with that model that, that many of us are not even fully aware of and, and that our kids are subject to as well. They sure are. And most of those games have levels. So they want to bring the child back, bring them back to get to the next level, the next level. The in-app purchases are extremely concerning. We have a new campaign on loot boxes. If you're familiar with those, which are, you know, items in a game, sort of like a treasure chest um, that you buy, that a child buys to say compete with a friend, to make it to the next level. And, they're, and they don't know what they're buying inside the loot box. It may be something that can get them to the next level, it may not. And so the idea of virtual currency is also a concern. I mean, one thing I, I like to remind people is 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you had to have a paycheck to be considered a consumer. And now kids are considered consumers from birth. Kids are targeted from birth essentially. Um, to be in a buy-buy situation. So, and, you know, the in-app purchases create a vagueness about money for them so that they're not able, they're not even buying something concrete. And some of the things we see in the younger children's apps are um, they can go into this free app like we're talking about and with trusted characters like Caillou or Clifford the Big Red Dog or Curious George, and they can play a couple of modules of the game and then they're really excited about it and then the others are locked until they purchase it. Um, some other kinds of manipulation that we see are characters. Um, if you don't buy them what they want, they cry. So this is really manipulating a child's emotions. Yeah, and again, it's this is not an individual problem. This is this is, uh, you know, kids are understandably relatively defenseless in the face of those kinds of methods because they're they're targeting basic hardwired human emotions and you know, responses that are perfectly appropriate in the normal world, <laughs> you know, to, if some, if, if someone cries, we want a child to have empathy for that person and respond in, in, a, in that way. And yet in this context, it's leading to, it's it, like you said, it's being used as a manipulation to buy something, not to actually elicit a real human uh, response for a real human reason. So, yeah, tremendously concerning. I, and I want to shift now to talking about some of the ways that Fair Play and the other organizations that you're involved with are, are working on a larger scale to address this problem at, at the government level, you know, cultural level, public health policy level, and then talk about some of the resources, the phenomenal resources that you offer for parents as a, as a way of helping them to uh, create these healthier 
boundaries and relationships with kids and screens. Thanks, Chris. So we work, as I mentioned, on a legislative level with Kids Online Safety Act, and we support other bills across the country, the California bills that were just in there, 2408. So we're able to bring in our experts to be able to testify, and we're able to work with our legislators to get safety online for children, both in the privacy aspect and in the manipulation aspect that we're discussing today. Um, we also will go after companies. We're a watchdog. So um, you mentioned earlier the gamification of education. Uh, I think you mentioned gamification. Um, we're concerned about the gamification of our education system and curriculum. And so one example of what we're doing with that is a product called Prodigy in school. It's a math game. It's also, they're also creating a similar literature and English version of it. And it's it has levels, just like we're talking about. It has um, a free version, and then it has a paid version. If your family cannot afford the paid version, you are literally playing in the mud online versus the children who are playing at the top of the mountain. So we're very concerned at how what widespread prodigy is getting in schools. And we're watching out for products like that that might be trying to manipulate many, many of our children on a wide scale. Um, at the Action Network, at the Springtime Action Network, we have seven work groups that address different topics. Two of our most active work groups are the cyberbullying and online safety work group. And that one is made up of several parents who have lost children to cyberbullying incidents um, or have had a very negative experience with social media and their children. Um, and our public health experts and data privacy experts who are in that work group assisting them. They are also supporting legislation, but they're also working to get companies to listen, to understand what's happening to their children, their precious children. That's really helpful, and uh, I applaud the work that you're doing, and I imagine that some people listening to this might want to support it. So, you know, what are the types of opportunities, whether volunteering or contributing financially, uh, for people to support the work that you're doing? Thank you, Chris. Um, we are at screentimenetwork.org, and we're a global collaborative we have about 2000 members globally now. To be a member, you're able to access the resource library. You're able, actually the resource library is free. You're able to access our news you can use. We curate four articles each week on children and screens. We know it's so hard to keep up with this. So we like to help people. Um, and also if you're doing work in preventing screen overuse in children, you're able to join, or if you would like to, you're able to join one of our work groups. And those work groups meet to create smaller communities within our larger global network. One of the thing, reasons that we started was we realized people doing this work or concerned about children and screens were feeling isolated or feeling like I'm the only person in my organization who's concerned about this. I'm the only person in my school who's worried about this. So we come together like-minded individuals um, and we collaborate on projects, often resource creation or um, advocacy projects. 
So you're able, able to join a working group, you're able to see what's going on a little bit more, and you're able to donate, which we really appreciate um, to screentimenetwork.org so that we can stay on top of the many, many issues. It's not one thing, Chris. You know, it's not just what we talked about with eyesight. It's not just obesity. It's not just um, developmental delays. It's all of this. Um, and it seems as though we have one win and something new comes up. So it's really important that we're able to stay on top of what's happening with children and screens. Absolutely. And what about uh, resources for parents? You mentioned a few throughout the conversation, and we'll put links to those in the show notes. But is there where would you recommend somebody start if they're they just want to kind of get an idea of what's available for to, to help them with their you know, work on this with their kids? Sure. Going to the resource tab at resource library tab at screentimenetwork.org will bring you to many, many resources and you're able to search. And we also have some filters. So if you have children ages three to five, there are resources there for that. You can search by age, you can search by concern. So if you are worried about maybe your child is overusing video games, and we like to say overuse, you know, people say addiction. And we like to say overuse because it may not be addiction. We kind of use that term colloquially now, um, but there are resources for that and many, many other areas at, at um, screentimenetwork.org. And one of my favorites I think I mentioned is our resource, Dear Parents, which really helps get that power struggle out of the conversation with teens about their smartphones. And that's a big, big issue in many families. Absolutely. And I think it it's worth pointing out that kids are very good at mimicking or adopting their parents' behavior. And so it's, uh, you know, I know personally myself and just talking to lots of people I've worked with over the years um, that, you know, we can't expect our kids to moderate their use if we're not also bringing awareness and attention to how we use devices and kids are they're pretty savvy and they pay a lot more attention to what we do than what we say right so exactly i'm at that's a big part of the equation yeah yeah a couple of things we recommend with that especially with young children it's great to narrate your use when you're using your phone because you may have to check your work email but if the child knows, I'm just checking my work email for five minutes, and then we're going to go read that book, or and then we're going to go outside. So they know you're not just wasting time on there, ignoring them, you, that you have to have a specific use for it. And that's another thing I encourage conversation about. What are we using them for? Are we using them for education to learn something new together? Are we using it for entertainment? Are we using it to connect? One of the other things that the AAP says is fine and is good is video chats with relatives that are far away or with a deployed military parent. So, you know, there are good uses for screens. We're not here saying put them all away. We're just saying, you know, kind of think about how you're using them and explain that to the kids. Hmm. One of the things we've done with varying levels of success, depending on the, the time period, is create screen-free rooms in the house. Um, like the living room or the kitchen, which are the places we spend the most time, so that you know those those rooms are dedicated to 
you know, in the case of kitchen, cooking and eating and just kind of hanging out and chatting and in the living room, reading or playing games or things like that. And if, if something needs to be done on a device that we actually have to get up and walk over to another space um, to do that. And of course, you know, depending on someone's living situation, they may not have that luxury. Um, but that's been a simple but pretty effective way of um, mitigating screen use as a family and just um, making it clear that there are places where we want to interact without being mediate, you know, without that interaction being mediated by a screen. Because um, I, I, I know I've seen studies that suggest that even having a phone out and in sight can change the quality of an interaction. So let's say you're at the dinner table and you've you're not using your phone, but it's it's sitting on the table next to you. Well, chances are your eyes are gonna, you know, just naturally go down to the phone, and uh, it's going to actually change the quality of that interaction that you're having, or if it's out sitting on the living room coffee table or something like that. So, even subtle changes or seemingly subtle changes can make a big difference. Some of those studies also say, Chris, that even if that phone is off, it changes the nature of your interaction because you're still thinking about what might be there, right? what might be waiting for you on the phone. So it definitely has an anticipatory effect there. Um, and one of the things I also recommend to parents is when you are, when the kids are on a screen and you're thinking about their content, use a concept called bridging, which is whatever content is on the screen, they can take off the screen and do. So some of the things during the pandemic, we saw kids learn how to cook and it was really fun. They were able to learn it on the screen and then do it off the screen or teaching your dog to roll over, uh, whistle with a blade of grass, You know, any kind of fun thing that they can learn on the screen, then they can take off the screen. So they learn the whole world isn't in, the, in there, it's everywhere. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And I think related to that, uh, and this comes more from Cal Newport's work, who, uh, which I love. And Me too. one of his uh, books where he you know, takes people through a 30 day period of of media restriction, you know, screen restriction. One of his main points, which I really agree with, is you won't be successful if it's just about deprivation and you know removing something uh, because most of us uh, don't like to be deprived and we will fight back against that even if we're the ones depriving ourselves. Uh, and, and we see this, of course, in dieting and all kinds of different areas. Um, whereas if you in, really in, create a strong intention for what you want to move toward or what you want to add to your life, what you want to do more of, a new hobby that you want to develop. Maybe you want to spend, be able to spend more time doing deep work as Cal Newport does it. You want to spend more time with your family and relationships. Like setting a goal or an intention that is positive and that you want to move toward will generally lead to more success than just saying, I want to cut out you know, screen time, or I want to do less of this because, because then you, you get into that sort of what you resist persists dynamic and uh, it's, it's just tends to be less successful. 
I agree. I agree. It's most of our family media plans are focused around setting goals like that for what we want to do, discussing what are our values as a family. Maybe we're a real outdoor family and we love camping and we love swimming and those things are really important to us. Let's make sure we're getting enough of that and maybe um, we're a church family or a faith we are a faith-driven family. Maybe it's really important that we participate in a faith community. Um, if those things go on first, it's like eliminating time for the screen time rather than, like you say, cutting it out. It's um, the AAP family media plan works that way. And you can actually see, you do it online and you can actually see how much time you're allocating for these things. And it, you can see the screen time bar go down, down and down. It's pretty cool. Um, and some of other, other plans are focused that way as well. Great. Well, Jean, thanks so much for this conversation. Uh, as we finish up here, can you just repeat some of the links you've mentioned earlier where people can go to learn more? Yes, please come and join us at ScreenTimeNetwork.org. We welcome members, parents, professionals, anyone who's concerned about this issue. Membership is free, um, and we hope to always keep it that way. Uh, come to ScreenTimeNetwork.org to find some great resources at our resource library. Check out the work groups if you'd like to do more. Go to FairPlay.org to learn more about our legislative efforts and our work with large corporations to try to mitigate some of the problems that we've talked about today. Well, thank you again, such an important issue. And I, uh, I really am grateful for the work that you and all your colleagues are doing and in, in raising awareness on this and, and really uh, helping everyone to understand that this is a public health issue at, at the same level uh, as, you know, diet and nutrition and the need to become less sedentary and move more and, you know, things like smoking cessation this has every bit as big of an impact on our health and well-being as individuals and as a society, if not more so than some of these other issues that, that we commonly recognize as public health questions uh, that we need to address together as, as, a, as a culture. So uh, again, really appreciate the work you're doing. Thank you for joining me. And thanks, everybody, for listening. Keep sending your questions to chriscresser.com slash podcast question. We'll see you next time. And that's the end of this episode of Revolution Health Radio. If you appreciate the show and want to help me create a healthier and happier world, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. They really do make a difference. If you'd like to ask a question for me to answer on a future episode, you can do that at chriscresser.com slash podcast question. You can also leave a suggestion for someone you'd like me to interview there. If you're on social media, you can follow me at twitter.com slash chriscresser or facebook.com slash chriscresserlac. I post a lot of articles and research that I do throughout the week there that never makes it to the blog or podcast, so it's a great way to stay abreast of the latest developments. Thanks so much for listening. Talk to you next time.